0: As the praise team met this morning and and spent some time in prayer after practice, we reflected momentarily on the reality of the first Palm Sunday, that as Jesus rode into the city on a a donkey, uh, very much in the eyes of the people there came as a conquering king ready to free his people from Roman domination, from, from Roman captivity. And so they cried out, Lord, save us. And little did they know or understand that he had come to save, but it wasn't through a a crown and a throne. Those came later. He came to save through the cross, the thing we just sang about, the wonderful cross, the very thing that requires, that asks everything of us. Salvation rarely comes in the way that we we expect even to this day. We've been working through the book uh, Song of Solomon in the series that we've entitled, strangely enough, Song of Solomon. When we started this journey about six weeks ago, I asked for a show of hands how many had ever really spent much time in the book personally or in a sermon series or Bible study. And I think there was about a half dozen hands. So I'd like to ask now how many have ever spent uh, any time in the Song of Solomon through a sermon series or a Bible study or a personal reading? There should be a whole lot more hands than that, folks. You just missed that one, okay? Let's wake up a little bit here today. We're going to need to, to hang in there today. So, uh, so when we started this series, it was fascinating. We really didn't know a whole lot about the, the book, but what we've come to find is that there's a, uh, there's a lot of richness in it. There's a lot of, of depth. It's interesting, though, that, that this book, Song of Solomon, almost didn't make it into the Hebrew Bible, for centuries, uh, the, the Jewish rabbis, uh, kind of the, pre, the predominant thought was that this song was, was little more than a drinking song, little more than a, a song that would be sung in bars as men were, you know, verger, ver, bordering on uh, inebriation. But then there, then there came this rabbi, his name was Rabbi Akiva, and he began to change people's minds about this book, and he did it through teaching on the book. Here's one thing that Rabbi Akiva said. The whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel, for all the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. And so he began to espouse this high view of this book of, of Song of Solomon, and that's an attitude that is carried on through the ages. Just a couple of years after Jesus lived, there was a theologian named Origen of Alexandria, and, and uh, he wrote a 10 commentary set on the book Song of Solomon. Now, how long is Song of Solomon? How many chapters? Eight, that's right. He wrote 10 commentaries on an eight-chapter book, a very high view of the book. Uh, As we move maybe a, a thousand years or so into the Middle Ages, there were more books written about the Song of Solomon than any other Old Testament book. How fascinating is that? More than, more than the story of creation in Genesis or the story of how the, the Hebrew slaves uh, became conquerors of the promised land, more was written about the Song of Solomon in the Middle Ages. About that time, there was another theologian. His name was Bernard of Clairvaux. He wrote, catch this, 86 sermons on the Song of Solomon. And he didn't even get past chapter 2. So for those of you who are struggling with the idea of six sermons on this book, just go ahead and breathe out an amen that it's not 86. There are all kinds of, I mean, as I, as I studied this book, there are just so many interesting things about Song of Solomon through, through church history that pop up again and again through the ages. Christians and pastors and theologians have placed high value on this book. What surprised me, though, is that not everyone has uh, properly understood the book. Uh, For example, Dr. Paul Johnson. Dr. Paul Johnson is a a minister and an author who's written extensively on Christians and the gay movement. And he's been involved with the, the Southern California gay movement for a number of years. He writes that Song of Solomon, quote, evolved from a frankly homophilic love poem used in homes and taverns, end quote. As I read that quote, as I was studying for this series, I was saddened. I was shocked. I was disappointed. I didn't know there was a group of scholars who, uh, uh, who totally misunderstood the thrust of this book. It didn't surprise me to find uh, so-called Christian scholars who bend and twist scripture to meet their own preconceived notions and, and make it say what they want to say so they feel justified and in their behavior, but it saddened me that they had so missed the mark on Song of Solomon and set it up as a book that would, um, that would suggest that it's okay for Christians to, to uh, behave in, in ways that don't suit God's desire. And so, what I'd like to do today is kind of a, an odd way to end this series. But what I'd like to do today is spend a few moments together asking the question, what does scripture really say about the LGBTQ movement? What does it really say about homosexuality and these other sexual struggles that very real people have in our culture? And so before we do that, I'm going to ask you if you'd bow and pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we hold up your word as truth. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend with this book, Song of Solomon, for the, for the way it's renewed some of us in our commitment to you and, and in our realization of how you love us and, and how it's renewed in us uh, a desire for our spouse or a desire to remain pure and committed until the time comes when, when you bring a, a spouse across our path. Lord, I thank you for the, the things you've accomplished. And Lord, we, uh, we take up this subject today. With humility, we ask for wisdom. Would I pray that you'd, uh, you'd help me to be bold and compassionate. There would be clarity today on what your word says about sexual issues that overflow and, 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 and surpass the boundaries that you've set for them. Father, I pray that you would remind us today as we approach your word that, that each of us are awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. And that you'd remind us that there's not a sin known to to humanity that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover and heal and forgive and, and bring restoration and reconciliation to once confession and acceptance of forgiveness has been granted. So Lord, with those we pray today and we ask that you would speak to us and give us ears to hear what your spirit would say. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention to two things in your bulletin. The, the first is the sermon notes for today. You can take those out, and if you like to uh, fill in the blanks or if you need someplace to doodle, uh, we gave you that opportunity there. Uh, the second thing I'd like to draw your attention to is this trifold. Um, I'm just going to mention it, and I would encourage you at some point to read it. It's called A Biblical View of Homosexuality. Uh, this is what our denomination uh, this is the statement of beliefs that we've put out regarding the human sexuality movement today, how we believe uh, scripture teaches on these things and how we strive to live. I'd, I'd encourage you to uh, take that out and keep it handy and, and perhaps that'll make some good reading material for you at some point this afternoon. And by all means, I encourage you to judge everything I would say today against what's written in there to make sure that what I'm teaching matches up with what our denomination believes, but more importantly, what scripture believes so we have, this, uh, we have these five letters that have kind of become an umbrella or a, a call phrase for a movement in our day and age. If we go to the next slide, please. Uh, these, these five letters, LGBTQ. Let's define those before we move on. Uh, L stands for lesbian. This would be a homosexual woman, a woman who finds herself sexually attracted to other women. G stands for gay, which would be a homosexual man. B, stands for bisexual. These would be both males and females who find themselves sexually attracted to both males and females. The T stands for transgendered. These are individuals whose senses of gender identity don't correspond with their sex at birth. And so in the last five years, the most popular has been, um, oh, what's his name? That Olympian guy. Yeah, yeah, Bruce Jenner. Um, uh, Originally a male, but, but uh, identified as a female. That kind of thing would fall under this, uh, this idea of transgender. There's actually, a, there's actually a word for those who identify as their birth sex who say that I, I agree with my sexual organs, and that's cisgender, C-I-S gender. So um, uh, everybody falls theoretically at least under one of those two categories. And then the Q stands for most often questioning and so that's those who are struggling with the sense of their sexual identity, uh, be that gender or, or, or who they're attracted to or so on and, and so forth. And these, there, there's actually many other letters uh, that, that precede the cue the here, but these have become kind of the five that represent an umbrella under which a whole movement and people who struggle with these issues find themselves. We uh, kind of get a sense just from the brief definitions that 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 probably that's not how God designed it to be, that 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 something here has gone off the tracks. And so what I'd like to do is, is ask the question first, what does the Bible say about sexual identity? What, what does the Bible teach as God's design? So to do that, we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to take your text and actually open it to there, that would be great. We're going to go back a slide, Dawn. Um, we want to ask, what does the Bible actually say about sexual identity? Now, as you're turning to Genesis 1 and 2, let, let me remind you again of the creation story you see, if we want to find answers, or if we want to have a sense of what God's design is for anything, we can typically go back to Genesis 1-2 and see how God created and designed it to be before sin entered the world. And So as we move through Genesis 1 six times, there's a word that appears. In Hebrew, the word is tov. In English, the word is good. And so as God created things, he pronounced it Good. But then we get down to the last verse of, of chapter 1, Genesis 131. And, uh, and now that Hebrew word tov is modified by the Hebrew word meod. Tov meod, it says. We say in the English often, very good. And it's, this, it's not just a sense like um, humanity, the, this last day of creation is is just a little bit better, like here's good and here's very good. Tov meod is the Hebrew way of saying that, that it was complete, that it was perfect, it was just as God designed it. And so we have a sense right off the bat before we begin to look at what are some characteristics here of human sexuality that, that God pronounces it perfect. This is my design, this is the way that I wanted. If If this creation of mine will live within this, this description, this desire things will go well for them. So let's look at four characteristics that we see from the first two chapters here about human sexuality, about sexual identity. First of all, binary genders are good. Genesis 1.27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so we have this sense here that humans are created in the image of God. And that's huge for this conversation because everything that this verse says points back to the reality that there's something about God reflected in how we were created. And so as we move through the verse, uh, we come to get a sense that that, that includes the, the reality that he created us as two genders. There's two options. There's male and female. And, and we get the sense that the image of God must encompass something about both of those genders. That both genders together reflect the image of God with which we've been created. And so we have this sense that, because it's mentioned here in 127, that our sexuality is a crucial part of what it means to be human. And it's a crucial part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That being male and female and the gender roles and the distinctions between the two are part of who God is. And they somehow reflect who God is. We, we have the sense that our gender options are fixed. There's two of them, male and female. They're binary, they're not gonna change. And regardless of what culture says about gender being non-binary, meaning more than two options, scripture teaches, no, God created them male and female, and in that, we reflect his image. Number two, uh, th- these first two chapters give us a, A sense that reproduction is good notice uh, chapter 1 verse 28 God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number and so there's a there's a sense in which because we're created in God's image God wants us to reproduce and, and he wants us to create more image bearers who will fill the earth for his glory and so so reproduction is good and part of God's plan for a for a binary gender system for two genders Of course, this idea of reproduction is good is modified by what we read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 where it says, that is why a man leaves his mother and father and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. This leads us to the third reality we see in the beginning of our story and that's that marriage is good. Marriage is good. God designed marriage as a place where man, one man and one woman come together together where they're united in a way that the image of God is more fully reflected than it is in either of them separately, that it becomes a relationship where where they can be fully known just as they fully know another human being. We get a sense that that in marriage, as God designed it and ordained it, there's there's an opportunity for the gender roles, the roles for the man and for the woman to have their fullest expression and to, to meld and merge the way that God designed them to and, and, we, and we believe that marriage is good not only because of what we see here in Genesis, but as we fast forward to the New Testament and, and we hear Paul and others begin to describe the relationship of Jesus to those who follow him, Jesus in the church, the, the metaphor he uses most is marriage. And he calls us the bride of Christ, and so we have a sense that, that marriage is good. And number four, we have a sense that sex is good. Notice chapter two, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And this verse is about more than their clothing options. This is about the reality that they were together enjoying each other the way that God had created them within the relationship that he had given them. And there was no shame in that. There was no shame in their sexual union. It was God designed. It was part of God's desire for humanity. And uh, and then everything changes. And then we move into Genesis chapter 3 and we see that rebellion and sin enter the world and we have a sense that everything is different from there on. God's design of male and females continues. Male and female dot the landscape of history, right? Makes sense. That's how we came to be. Um, Sex continued to dot the landscape, so did marriage, so did reproduction. All those things continued to be present, but when sin entered the world, somehow they were twisted and warped, and yet we still see that God in his goodness was involved. Notice Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. So we have the sense that even after sin in the world, God still gives us a cue that his design can still be lived within. His design still matters and fits and works. And we see all of those elements here in the first verse of chapter 4. Male and female coming together in marriage, reproducing, enjoying the fruits of their relationship and giving God the glory for it. With God's help, we've done this thing. So, uh, so from, from here on out after Genesis 3, all these things continue, and unfortunately what's introduced into the mix is, um, is a warping of these things. And so as we continue through Scripture, we see men and women begin to pursue sexual gratification that Scripture never intended, that isn't part of God's design. And every time we see it in Scripture, whenever someone in Scripture fulfills their sexual desires apart from God's design for human sexuality, Scripture calls it sexual immorality. Anytime we pursue anything with our sexuality that falls outside of God's design as we see it in Genesis 1 and 2, Scripture says it's wrong. It's sin. It does not please God. It doesn't bring you closer to God. It doesn't glorify God. It does just the opposite. And this is actually the, the case with, with all sin. There's, there's all kinds of immorality the Bible talks about. There's, uh, immorality isn't just sexual in nature. And so what the, the, what the Bible writers continue to do as we move through Scripture is they give us descriptions and they give us prescriptions about immorality and the effect it plays in our lives and how we're to understand it and relate to it. So what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time today is jump to, to Romans chapter 1. If you would take your text and turn there. In Romans chapter 1, Paul gives us a, a glimpse, an understanding of the toll that immorality takes, and not just the toll, but, but really kind of the vacuum it becomes in our lives. Romans chapter 1, we'll start reading there in a minute. Uh, Paul wrote this book of Romans to Christians in the city of Rome. We're familiar with that city in, in present-day terms, and he wrote it from, he was staying in the city of Corinth when he wrote this letter. Now, now what do we know about the city of Corinth? Corinth was a very um, permissive, indulgent society. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes letters to the Christians at Corinth, uh, the the first letter, kind of the the high point or the low point really is when he says to them, a man among you sleeps with the father's wife and you guys don't even blink an eye? There's something wrong here. They're a very sexually permissive society. Uh, We might say that Corinth was like um, the Las Vegas or the Amsterdam of today—anything went, everything's okay—and so I want you to have a sense that as we read what Paul wrote in Romans one, he's not writing as um, as some kind of ivory tower theologian. He's not writing academics for you know for only the wise and the learned. We're talking about a man who was surrounded by the very thing about which he was writing. His head wasn't in the sand. He he wasn't blind to the reality of what was happening around him. Rather, he said, there are real struggles that real people have, but there's real truth about it. Let's talk about that real truth. And so he writes this to the Christians at Rome. Chapter 1, I'm going to start reading at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So so Paul's saying the things we just read in Genesis 1 and 2, they're obvious. It's not hidden. It's not some kind of puzzle we have to piece together and figure out. He says they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. If we'll look at God's creation, we can discern the truth about who he is so that people are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So we have these verses and Paul launches in and says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor did they... Give thanks to him. And so the the question here is, well, who's the they? Who are we talking about? Are we talking about some remote villagers on an island somewhere that that begin to uh, entertain these impure sexual behaviors? Perhaps. But I think if we understand what Paul's writing in its fullest, we'd have to bring Romans 3.23 to bear on this conversation. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so we have a sense that the they that Paul is talking about somehow is we. Somehow is me. Somehow is us. Now, Paul uses sexual immorality as an example of, of, of what sin does, of the, the degrading that, that we, that I, that you did. But, but notice he's painting a bigger picture here, the reality of sin and immorality in our lives. He, he, he gives us kind of four things that sin does uh, uh, a, a progression, if you will, or, or four effects. He says, first of all, sin skews our worship. Notice again verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And how have we not experienced this to be true? How difficult is it to be part of corporate worship on Sunday morning when we know that on church, on the way to church we yelled at our wife and said something we shouldn't have said? And so here we are trying to worship with God's people, and we've got this, this sin hanging over our head. And, and, and we have a we have a sense that sin does skew worship, not just corporate worship, but, but my own worship. How much easier is it to, to sleep in or to skip my lunchtime quiet time when I know I've got this issue that I just can't bring, I, I, I just can't bring myself to repent. I just can't bring myself to confess. Sin skews our worship. It takes our eyes off of Jesus, and and it becomes a cancer to every form of worship, personal worship, corporate worship, just the sense that I'm walking daily with God. Not only does sin skew our worship, but it skews our thinking. Notice verses 21 through 23. Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchange the glory of the immortal God. And so the reality is when we've taken God off the throne of our life, when we've allowed sin to to take our eyes off him and to skew our worship, the next thing that's going to go is our thinking. Our thinking will be more and more twisted. We'll begin to be less concerned about what it takes to please God and more concerned about what it takes to gratify me. It's less about pleasing him And more about finding the pleasure that I desire. Which is the third way sin messes with us. Not only does it skew our worship and our thinking, but it skews our desires. Notice again verse 24. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. You see, once we've taken our eyes off Jesus and begin to to worship at a different throne... And once we begin to think, you know, it's really, I'm really more interested in what I want than what God wants. And what, and what I need right now matters the most. Then, then before long, our heart comes along and, and says, yeah, I want what I want. And, uh, and I think I need to get that. I think I deserve that. And so our desires lead us To fulfill the needs that God has created us for, created for us. Needs that normally his Holy Spirit fulfills for his children, love, acceptance, the sense that that we have a purpose and we begin to desire to fulfill those things in other ways, to find our worth and our value in things other than God. Sin skews our worship and our thinking, it skews our desires and, and finally it skews our behavior. Notice what happens in verse 24, the last half. God gave them over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So once our worship and our thinking or desires have been skewed, it's really just kind of a given. There goes our behavior, too. We can't live any other way when our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus and our thinking and our desires have run amok. And this is the problem with behavior modification. So many assume, especially when we talk about this this issue of sexual identity or sexual struggles, so many people assume if we can just change the behavior, we'll be good to go. Well, yes, ultimately the desire is that the behavior would stop and would glorify God. But we don't glorify God by changing the behavior. The behavior, in a sense, is the caboose on the train. We change the behavior when we turn people's eyes and hearts and minds back to Jesus, when they begin to worship him instead of their own desires, when their thinking becomes, what do I do in this moment to glorify God? When their desire becomes, I want to find who I am and what I need in my relationship with God. I want to to please him more than I want to pleasure myself. Sin warps all of these areas. And we have a sense, as Paul talks about it here, that this sin progression It doesn't just apply to those who struggle with sexual sin, although that's the example Paul uses here. We have a a sense that this progression applies to all of us, that somewhere in the the day-to-day living of our life, this is how sin works on all of us. It takes our eyes off of Jesus Then it begins to change our thoughts about how we're going to live. And and then our desires take on a different taste, a a different sense. And and then before long, we find ourselves doing the very thing that we don't want to do. This is reality, Paul says, for every human being. And so, so when some people would say, you know what, I was born this way. And so it's okay for me to be like this because this is obviously how God desired me to be. If he didn't want me this way, I wouldn't have been born this way. Well, well, there's some truth to that, but only some. The reality is, yes, you were born that way. But that doesn't make it acceptable. That doesn't make it right. We're all born with a, with a tendency towards skewed worship and thinking and desires and behavior, but that doesn't make it right. That's not God's design and God's desire Sin is never acceptable, regardless of how much of it is in our genetic makeup. God has a way that he wants us to live, and it doesn't involve exchanging his design for our desires. So I started out today saying I'd like to see how do we we respond to this this movement in our culture, this LGBTQ movement, and, and how do we respond to people within that movement who struggle with, with these issues that are very real for them. I think before we can fully address that, we need to ask where do I fall in this Romans 1 picture? Where have I exchanged the glory of God for my own desires? So let's ask three questions. First of all, how have I exchanged God's plan for my pleasure? How have I exchanged God's plan for my own pleasure. It was uh, earlier this year when we were in the, the throes of the presidential election cycle. It was one evening, the kids had gone to bed and, and Sarah and I were sitting in our basement watching Netflix. Um, I, don't, well, I do remember what we were watching actually, but um, this, was, this was just kind of what we were doing before we went to bed. And as we were watching Netflix, I was uh, on my, my iPhone, on uh, one of my devices, scrolling through my Facebook feed. Am I the only one who does this? The rest of you are just being dishonest, okay? Or, or some of you anyway, not all of you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't say that. But, but I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed and I run across this story from, I don't know, one of the news outlets that, that talks about how uh, several elected officials had changed their position on this homosexual marriage matter. And so where before they used to stand against it, they were on the record as against it. Now they're Therefore, and there was, you know, I read the story, and there was a little, a little video clip that went with it that showed, you know, some of their statements before and some of their statements now and so on and so forth. And, and as I read it and watched that video, I got so irritated. Like, I could feel my, my pulse rate increase, and like, I could feel my blood pressure go up, and I, ugh, I can't believe this. This irritates me that they would do this. How can, how can they think this is right? And so I turned my phone off, and I turned my attention back to what was on, on Netflix, and uh, and and within like within like thirty seconds of doing that, um, I found myself laughing. On the show that we were watching, it was a sitcom. Uh, a husband and wife were having an exchange in typical sitcom fashion, mind you, about some intimacy issues they were having in their marriage. And I found myself chuckling and laughing along. You know, of course, that was that was what they wanted. They wanted us to laugh, and I was willing to oblige. And it didn't hit me in the moment, it took a little while, but then it dawned on me, wait a minute, I'm upset and angry, righteously indignant, if you want to sanctify it about this homosexual marriage thing, but then when I look at, when I look at this, this idea of heterosexual sin within a marriage, I laugh. What's up with that? Why would God's desires in, 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 in two different areas, not, God's desires not being met, elicit from me a different response? Either we honor God's desires or we exchange them for our pleasure. The, this doesn't honor God when we exchange it for his pleasure. It doesn't matter what arena it's in, what umbrella it's under, what, the, what the, 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 the kind of immorality is. I wonder how many of us at any point have exchanged God's plan for our pleasure How many of us in the course of this cycle explained away Donald Trump's crude comments about women because, well, I mean, he's a man. If you heard what I heard in the locker room at work, you wouldn't think that was any big deal. That's just just how men talk. Seriously? That's okay? It's okay to exchange God's design for our desire? Or guys, how about this? Men, how many of you have ever been driving down the road? Um, this will happen perhaps more now as the weather gets nicer and, and you, see a, uh, you, you see a jogger running uh, along the side of the road. Only this happens to be a female. And as you get past her, you glance in the rearview mirror to see a second look. And we do it all the time. We exchange God's desire for our pleasure, his plan for what I want. God is not okay with that. No matter how it happens, whether it happens under the LGBTQ umbrella, whether it happens in in regards to heterosexual matters, or whether it happens in regards to non-sexual matters, when we exchange God's plan for our pleasure, God is not pleased. And every kind of immorality and every kind of sexual immorality violates God's plan in Genesis 1 and 2. Homosexuality is wrong and so are extramarital affairs. Bisexuality is wrong, and so is staring at or lusting after that jogger on the side of the road. Transgenderism is wrong, and so is not working with your spouse to fulfill his or her God-honoring sexual desires and needs. Nothing under the LGBTQ umbrella is any more or less sinful than visual pornography or literary pornography. The reality is, anytime we exchange God's plan for our pleasure, we've missed the mark. The second question I think we need to ask today before we can begin to address this LGBTQ movement is Have I exchanged, or how have I exchanged, the truth of God's word for the experience of man? How have I in my own life exchanged the truth of God's word for the experience of man? Uh, it was uh, in the last month, I was with a, a group of religious leaders that uh, all come from different denominations and backgrounds. And uh, as we were getting to know one another, one of the men in the group, he's a, he's a younger guy, probably in his 30s. Uh, he's a Lutheran pastor. And, uh, and he begins to tell us about uh, his wife, and, and they're pregnant. And they've been pregnant a number of times, but always had a miscarriage earlier in the process. But um, but here they're, they're doing well. The, the, the pregnancy's going well. The baby seems to be healthy. And so they've gotten along far enough now that they finally felt like it would be okay to ask the gender of the baby. You know, they, they, they had a sense that this one could probably go the distance and they, they'd be holding their first child here come this fall. And so as, as he's telling us that, that they, uh, they went to find out the baby's gender before he could tell us what they were gonna have in a moment of absolute stupidity, I blurted out, you mean you can know a baby's gender before they decide what gender they are? Yeah, yeah. How stupid was that? As soon as I said it, all the air was sucked out of the room. You could hear an invisible pin drop. And I'm just going, oh God, there's not a mountain big enough for me to crawl under right now seemed like an eternity before the air started to return to the room and the first person to talk was a was a uh, was a woman who's p- part of this group who um works with another denomination at the college level on the campus of IU a you know a religious organization with uh with college students and uh and she says kind of with that shake and that quiver in her voice and a tear in her eye i just all i think about is all the transgendered women across the world who are being persecuted for their sexuality, and I had about a half dozen things I wanted to say by the grace of God. I was smart enough this time to keep my mouth closed. I may not always be the the, the quickest on the uptake, but i I do understand that sometimes it 's better to remain silent now and create time and space so that you can come back later and say something that perhaps will add light instead of heat. But as I sat there and as her words reverberated, I thought, what in the world? Since when does the way some people are treated determine what's right and wrong? I mean, I don't want anyone to be persecuted for any reason. I don't believe that ever glorifies God. I don't believe it ever has or ever will. But just because someone's persecuted doesn't make their behavior right. It doesn't set the standard for God's designs and God's desire. And yet how many times do we do this? Do we look at our experience and we say, "Well, that must be true." We we forget to look at, or in some parts of the the church today, we don't even look at intentionally the word of God to see what's right and what's wrong. Right and wrong are not based on man's experience and they never will be. They're based in the word of God. I think the third question we need to ask ourselves is, have I exchanged righteousness for justification? Have I exchanged righteousness the sense that I'm living right and I'm pleasing God and mine is a holy life have I exchanged that for, I can do this because, for justifying our behavior? Listen to what one Christian author writes. At about the age of 13, I began to notice girls. Or should I say, it was then that I began to notice little else. 25 years later, the inclination is a bit more refined, a bit more controlled, but only a bit. Wherever I am, I notice women, and I notice particular parts of women. I often entertain fleeting thoughts, at times lingering thoughts, of how I might enjoy sexual expression with women I have never met. It is, after all, only natural for a man. Or is it? Was I born with an inclination to desire sexual interaction with several different women? Uh, An inclination that merely remained dormant for my first 13 years? Did my father, whose desires are very similar to mine, train me to think about women in a certain way? Am I the product of a lifelong exposure to advertisement, films and popular music? Did the trauma of my parents divorce when I was three, or, or my mom's actions during my infancy created me particular sexual needs and desires? And the author goes on to explain, and, and I would agree that all of those are good questions. All of those are worth exploring. We do well to know ourselves and understand our motivations. But not a single one of those questions, and not even all of them together, justifies immoral sexual behavior of any kind. Causation doesn't equal justification. Natural explanations, whether they're from from birth or from upbringing, never give us permission to violate God's standards. The reality is that we may not always choose our temptations, but we always choose how we we'll respond to them. So we, we have a sense that um, on the one hand, we have this book, Song of Solomon, that we've been reading that extols the virtues of human sexuality in the context of marriage. And then, then we look today at, at God's design and desire from Genesis, and, and, and we saw how God created us as sexual beings, and, and that it pleases him when we express ourselves within the boundaries he's created. We've seen that sin takes its toll, and, and on all of us, in every way, somehow leads us astray. And so we're still left with the question of, well, like, what do we do? How do we respond to this LBGTQ movement? What? I, What's to be our response? Certainly there's a lot more than we can cover today, but I want to I close with three actions I think we need to take. Three actions that we need to take. First of all, we need to look in. We need to look in. We need to examine. I need to examine my own heart. And I need to see where in my own life have I exchanged what God designed for something else. Whether it's sexual in nature or not, where have I missed the mark? Do I understand how desperately separated from God I am without Jesus Christ? We need to examine ourselves before we begin to examine anyone else. I would say kind of the second part of look in is that we need to avoid selective moral outrage. Write this down. Avoid selective moral outrage. And so, friends, if you're going to rant on Facebook about the most recent live-action Disney film and the way it portrays LGBTQ themes, fine. But we should also find you ranting on Facebook about the way your favorite TV show does that. Okay, do you get what I'm saying? You can't pick one sin over the other. They all miss God's mark. And if you're going to rant about them, rant about all of them. Now, I personally think that Facebook isn't the best place to rant. I think you'd be much better off instead to, uh, to examine your own life and see where do you fall short of God's glorious standard and, and to pray for those who, who struggle with whatever it is that, that, um, that, that, that's got your attention and your frustration in the moment. But the reality is, remember that you need God's grace as much as the person whose behavior disgusts you. They don't need it more or less than you do. We're all desperately separated from God without Jesus Christ. I kind of let her see under this look in. I would, I would remind you that Scripture says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I would challenge you to ask God to help ensure that what comes out of your mouth glorifies God and is pleasing to him. That it's not derogative speech about those struggling with, uh, with their sexual identity or with impulses that don't fit within God's design. I told you um, about this stupid thing I said last month. In those moments when the air was sucked out of the room, After I'd already said it, wishing I could go back and unsay it, I realized just like that the message I sent. It wasn't funny. It wasn't humorous. It wasn't sarcastic. What I communicated was that I have a sense that I need the grace of God less than someone who struggles with sexual identity issues. That somehow I've arrived and they haven't. That that, that I'm good enough, but they won't be. And this isn't the reality. The truth is we're all desperately separated from God without Jesus Christ, and we have to guard our words so that what we say and what we type don't send the message that somehow we're better than because we're not. We just have found the one who has forgiven us and healed our hurts, and we can extend him to those who are still looking. First, I think we need to look In And second, I think we need to look out. Our desire desire should be to express humble compassion while maintaining deep conviction. Friends, if we want to help those who are struggling with their their sexual identity, and understand there's two different things here. We've We've got a cultural movement on the one hand, and then we've got individuals that we know and love on the other hand if we're going to help people who struggle with very real sins, we've got to be deeply compassionate. We've got to create a space for them to admit what they struggle with. You know, in the last 20 or 30 years, through through movements like Promise Keepers and others, the church has become a safe place for heterosexual men who struggle with sexual sin. It's become safe for a, for a, a heterosexual male to say, I struggle with pornography or I struggle with lust. It's become safe and many men have found healing and freedom because the church said there's a desperate need here and if we stigmatize these, these men in this issue, there's never gonna be freedom. God is never gonna be glorified in this. And so the church said, enough, we're done. We will be a safe place. You can confess your sins one to another and you can find healing, as scripture says. And friends, until the church is ready to do that with issues that fell under the LGBTQ umbrella, we're going to see a growing part of our culture that doesn't find freedom, that doesn't find healing. And unless and until we're ready to, uh, to extend that grace, to get our hands dirty, to be kind, we are going to continue to give over the next generation to struggle with these very things. If they can't talk about it here where God is present they're going to be driven further and further and further into their confusion and into their sin. We have to be a place where we have deep convictions that we will not violate. But we're, where we are full of gentle compassion. And so friends, if you know of someone, if you have a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or a, or a child who struggles with sexual identity issues... And if you're not the most caring, kind person they know on this subject, that's a fail. Big time. We have to be kind and compassionate and tender so that we can help people find the freedom and the answers they need. And finally, we have to look up. We have to look up daily. We must be intentional about putting God at the center of our lives. Daily, we have to realize that if I don't make God my focus and my center, there's something about my life, my worship, my thinking, my desires, my behavior that's going to be skewed. And it may not be in the way someone else is skewed, but, uh, but it's going to not glorify God. I'm going to exchange God's design for my desires. We have to remember that there's one sin that plagues all of us. It may have different names as we move from person to person, but it's the same sin, and it separates us from Jesus Christ, the only thing we can do is to fix our eyes on Jesus, to continue in our own lives to accept his forgiveness and to to walk in a righteous life that pleases him. We have to understand that laws aren't going to change it. We are not going to return to the days in this country where we have the laws that we want that that protect marriage the way that we want and, and that protect our bathrooms the way that we want and so on and so forth. Those aren't the answers. The answer is in Jesus Christ alone and in living as though he is our king and our coming redeemer. Our job isn't to legislate morality, it's to help people find freedom in Jesus Christ, their Savior. And so we need to to look up. In your own life, fix your eyes on Jesus every day. As you engage the culture on, on anything under this umbrella, fix your eyes on Jesus. As the Holy Spirit brings across your path individuals, very real people with very real struggles, fix your eyes on Jesus. Friends, the reality is that these are real struggles. There's a cultural movement that that we abhor, but the people within that movement have been created in the image of God, and they desperately need a Savior like we found. And it's up to us, through deep convictions and kind compassion, to show them a Savior who loves them and is willing to forgive them and is willing to give them, place in them desires that honor him and then give them the strength to fulfill those desires. We can be that people if we'll choose to be. Will you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And even though it's difficult uh, we thank you that it doesn't shy away from topics like this, that, uh, th- that, that any topic we would explore, your word constantly brings us back to the reminder that we're all in need of a Savior, that we all have a tendency to exchange your design for our desires, that we can all find forgiveness. And so, Lord, while we've barely scratched the, the, the surface of this topic, while there's so much more we could talk about, I thank you for the sense this morning that, um, that there is a Redeemer who sees us all where we're at, who has a design and a desire for us and has the ability to help us live in that. Lord, I would pray for any here today who are struggling. Perhaps they're, they're struggling because they've got a friend or a family member who, uh, who is unsure about their sexual identity. Lord, I pray that that you would give give those with with, uh, someone who's struggling, give them compassion, give them clarity on their convictions. and Lord, I pray that they would be a safe place and a kind place where that person would know they're accepted, but where they also hear the truth and see the truth. Lord, I pray for those among us who are struggling with sexual identity issues. Lord, I pray that they would find us, Beulah Missionary Church, Christians in general, to be not mean-spirited and nasty, but kind and compassionate, with deep conviction, but willing to love them and listen to them and try to understand them and continually and always point them back to Jesus Christ, to to the Father's design for them, and the Holy Spirit's ability to unskew their worship and thinking and desires and behavior and create them into people who are righteous, holy children of God. Father, we can't do this. This is too big for us. This is too difficult for us. So we continue to ask for your grace as we move forward. In your name we pray, amen. If you'd stand, please, I'd like to bless you before we're dismissed. And if you're a guest with us today, um, after I conclude the blessing, the congregation will respond with and also to you. And in that way, we'll fulfill the biblical sense that we're all saints and brothers and sisters on this journey. May the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen, your love, you're dismissed.